0: This evening's talk is called Through the Looking Glass, the Reality of No Self. And the looking glass uh, being a reflective, a reflecting mirror that one can step into, as in the story of Alice in Wonderland. Over a period of years, during my childhood and then on through adolescence and into my teen years, I had a recurring dream many times. And in these dreams, I would be standing looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back and back, smaller and smaller, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself, looking at myself in the mirror endlessly. And I was many times quite amazed and fascinated and intrigued by this dream. And if I thought about it very much, uh, I would get quite perplexed. (laughs) But mostly I was just really interested in the dream interested enough that it's actually the only dream that I really clearly remember experiencing from my early years. This dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life, beginning when at the age of 16 I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was uh, required to write in high school. Uh, about religions other than Judeo-Christian religions. And right then, I had the distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. With this evening's talk, we'll explore the third of what are called the three characteristics, the three truths of all phenomena, the first being anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, of all situations, of every relationship, every experience, every single phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum, with the second universal characteristic of all things, all phenomena, being dukkha, meaning the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world, because of nothing being secure, sustaining in the outer world of experience, relationships, places, situations, or material objects. Nothing sustaining in the world of our inner and or in the world of our inner experiences of body and mind. None of it really offering a sustaining sense of pleasure or sustaining sense of happiness. But rather the dukkha of the round and round and round, of pleasant and unpleasant or seemingly good and seemingly bad, of liking and disliking. The dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of the rounds of conditioned existence simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things all phenomena having the nature to change and to pass away, thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing sustaining satisfaction. This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all, the reality that for many people seems the most difficult to touch, the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though it might be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of not-self, might often be fraught with a subtle or maybe a more overt fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth is so basic and so simple that with even just a taste of it, it makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept of an idea of belief that separates us from the reality of not-self. Most of us live in and out of the idea, the concept of a separate, solid and even static, me, I, them, him, her, that, it, within the context of our immediate bodily and mental experience and within the imagined possibility context of the possible future or the evaporated past. It's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears and beliefs, to relinquish attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self identities. It's important to recognize that in relinquishing our attachments we're not asked to throw our self out. It's not about getting rid of what we think of as ourself because it's a bad thing. What's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as ourself, everything we believe to be ourself, everything we think of and believe to be other selves, just simply doesn't Exist in any independent, permanent, unchanging, solid, static, substantial way. Not even for a moment. One aspect of what we call self, and a primary aspect of self for most of us, is form, the body rupa in Pali. This body or rupa is a subtle and yet very clearly discernible phenomena that we can see and know through our practice. In truth this body is made up of many elements as we explored last week in the mindfulness talk about the body. This body is made up of the earth element with its characteristics of hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The water element with its characteristics of flowing and cohesion. And the fire element with its characteristics of heat and coldness. And the air or the wind element with its characteristics of supporting and pushing. With each and all of these elements being in constant flux in and of themselves and in relationship with each other. So our so-called self as a body is in constant flux. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Maybe you tasted a little bit of this in the scene drawing days that we've just spent together. So in truth, there's really nothing to attach to, there's really nothing to cling to. Essentially, all of the Buddha's teachings and practices lead to this. The Buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality, that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha. He wouldn't discuss questions that didn't deal directly in some way With understanding confusion and anguish. He wasn't a teacher of philosophy. He was a teacher of life, a teacher of a way of life, a teacher of the practices that directly lead to the experiential understanding of the truth of the way of things. He was a teacher of peace, a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace. The essential aim and to teach the aim of the teachings and the practices is to look in the mirror at ourself and look with such sincerity, humility and willingness that we begin to see ourself more accurately we begin to see through ourself by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning that we invest things with when we're attached. Without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're identified with them. It's actually very simple. Maybe not so easy but really very simple. So we're sitting. <clears throat> pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Heaviness or lightness is just heaviness or lightness. Red or yellow is just red or yellow. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Remembering or memory is just remembering or memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences are merely, are just in themselves. There's merely existing and rapidly changing conditions merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditional existence there's no true sustaining happiness. And in the same vein we could say that there's no real sustaining suffering. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self, what the Buddha called the conceit of self, that we experience anguish and confusion. In a brief teaching that I offered the other morning, I'd like to repeat uh, by Chinese sage Nan Shin, by not quite accepting because they do not please us, things that are so. We spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that. Everything. Anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that things are only so much? Can we look into the mirror of our self without claiming ownership and without investing an interpretation, without investing a layer of meaning over top of what we see? So, for instance, we think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my breath my pain, my thoughts, my joy, my fear, my friends, my house. This is some of how we create self again and again. This is how we become, how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught that this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that their not-self is seeing self. The looking glass of the Dhamma. Looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing the truth of self looking at myself in the mirror if we continue to investigate with willingness and humility it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perceptions will change the knot the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is self and that things belong to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way of perceiving will quite naturally steadily increase. Can we observe experience? Can we inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative attention. It's really only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed investigated are no longer separate no me and it there's merely rising and falling merely heat merely an ache in the chest or a tingling moving through the body merely a thought arising and passing no duality as it's sometimes spoken of know too just this present moment being known just as it is. Only by training oneself again and again in seeing and knowing the presently arisen thoughts, bodily sensations, and other sensory experiences, feelings mind states and perceptions as mere impersonal processes can the power of a deeply rooted egocentric thought habits and self-centered inclinations it's only then can this be loosened and broken up reduced let go of relinquished and at some point finally eliminated. It's through the actual, not the conceptual, but the actual direct experiential confrontation with the fact of impersonality that we come to know self, that we come to know not self, no self, And then, finally, or just for a moment, it's not all about me. And the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine, that's based in the fear of losing something, is not there. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing to cling to. For a moment, the heart, the mind is free. some words from the Buddha Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or me or mine Whoever has heard this truth has heard all the Dhamma Whoever practices this truth has practiced all the Dhamma Whoever realizes this truth has realized all the Dhamma It's a heavy load, a burden to carry our self around. The body and its myriad permutations, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, we shoulder quite a heavy burden carrying all of the things of life around in the forms of thoughts and feelings and various opinions and perceptions and beliefs, believing that they're mine, that they're me, that they're myself. There's a kind of sting that we sometimes feel in hauling around all the permutations of this burden with a sense of ownership, a sense of identification. The Buddha offered the metaphor of seeing a poisonous snake but if you don't pick it up there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake but the poison hasn't touched you, it hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled don't get stung don't get caught up with it therein lies the potential for peace of mind life still happens and we make use of things in this world as it's appropriate we keep looking and seeing and living life and in fact living much more freshly and much more fully in the here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice. Ordinary life becomes our teacher, right here on retreat and in our life outside a retreat as we lift a cup and fill it with water as we sit and receive experience and notice, as we receive and simply know the gap between the outbreath and the in-breath. And a poem regarding this by Jane Hirshfield, Buddhist poet Jane Hirshfield. She calls it only when I am quiet and do not speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder Dreaming and waking the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that, for I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off as I glimpse for even an instant, the actual instant. As if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where it appears in us the pronoun, I. Our whole life becomes our practice when we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other and that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent elements and processes. Do I reside in the intestines or in the rumbling sensations therein? Am I in the thigh bone, or the skin, or the head hair, or the softness inside the mouth? Is the in-breath, the cool sensation of the in-breath, is this me? Do I reside in the fluid vibration of the foot as it moves through space, or the sensation beginning in the heart and spreading through the body as metta is offered to a dear friend. So we might think, okay, maybe I'm not the foot. (laughs) I'm not the sensation of the in-breath but certainly my mind, my conscious mind is me. I mean without my mind Without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. As these next words are spoken... Let go of listening with the intellect. <coughs> Letting go of interpreting with the intellect. And just simply open and receive the words. Just simply, directly hearing. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does it have a shape? A color? A texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body? Or from someone else? Do you find anything that we could call mind? (coughs) Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? The very nature of mind itself is that it's unformed unborn as it's sometimes called. (coughs) It's without color, without shape. Look into your own mind if you can find it. It's like experiencing zero which might not be a very appealing sounding experience to many people. In the opening line of a book by mathematician Robert Kaplan he says, when you look at zero you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomena. It, too, arises and passes away, moment by moment. It, too, is dependent on contact with some object through one of the six sense doors, dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of this contact. It too is dependent on mental labels, constructs, and clinging that arise in the conscious mind through contact. like to read the <clears throat> Buddha's short discourse on the non-self characteristics, which is basically a series of questions that we can really take to heart as a practice teaching that the Buddha repeated many, many times throughout his 45 years of teaching. On one occasion the Buddha was dwelling at Benares in the Deer Park and there he addressed the monks of the group of five and said this, Monks' material form is non-self, for if monks' material form were self, this material form would not lead to affliction and it would be possible to determine of material form let my, materi- let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But because material form is non-self, material form leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine of material form, let my form be be thus, let my form not be thus. Feeling is non-self. Perception is non-self. Intentional or volitional formations, meaning thoughts and words and actions, are non-self. Consciousness is non-self. For if, monk, consciousness were self, this consciousness would not, would not lead to affliction. And it would be possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus. Let my consciousness not be thus. But because consciousness is non-self, consciousness leads to affliction. And it's not possible to determine of consciousness, let my consciousness be thus let my consciousness not be thus. What do you think, monks? Is material form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is, is what is impermanent, unsatisfactory and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? No, venerable sir. Is feeling Permanent or impermanent is perception intentional intentional formations is consciousness he goes through all the same same things is consciousness permanent or impermanent impermanent venerable sir is what is impermanent unsatisfactory suffering is what is impermanent unsatisfactory or happiness or is sometimes said is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? unsatisfactory venerable sir is what is impermanent unsatisfactory and subject to change fit to be regarded thus this is mine this I am this is myself no venerable sir and the Buddha goes on therefore monks, any kind of material form feeling perception volitional formations or intentional formations and any kind of consciousness whatsoever whether past future or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, all material form, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and all consciousness should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. Seeing thus, monks, the instructed noble disciple becomes disenchanted with material form, disenchanted with feeling, with perception, with volitional formations, disenchanted with consciousness. Becoming becoming disenchanted, he or she becomes dispassionate, which means unattached. Through dispassion, his or her mind, heart is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge, it's liberated. He or she understands, destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There's no more coming back to any state of being. This is what the Buddha said. Elated, those monks delighted in the Buddha's statement. And while this discourse was being spoken, the minds of the monks of the group of five were liberated from the taints by non-clinging. And then there were six arhats. Then there were six accomplished ones in the world. Should it be that easy? <laughs> Maybe if we had the Buddha to listen to. <laughs> the conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment just like every other conditioned phenomena consciousness exists only in relationship to some object that it's in contact with through one of the six sense doors no matter how gross or subtle that object might be And to make this really clear to his students, the Buddha spoke quite specifically about the six aspects or the six doors of consciousness, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, and mind or mind phenomena consciousness. There's a Tibetan teaching that says all thoughts, good, bad, happy, and sad, vanish into emptiness as the imprint of a bird in the sky. It's really from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional. And that because of this, it can then be, of course, one of the arising conditions that lead to suffering, that lead to dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness. I'd like to offer you two sh- very short conversations uh, that the Buddha had with his, one of his primary disciples, Ananda. Ananda says to the Buddha, Venerable sir, it said the world, the world. In what way is it said the world? And the Buddha responds. Whatever is subject to disintegration, Ananda, is called the world in the Noble One's discipline. And what is subject to disintegration? The I, Ananda, is subject to disintegration. Forms, Eye consciousness, eye contact, whatever feeling arises with eye contact as the condition, that too is subject to disintegration. The ear, the mind, whatever feeling arises with mind contact as the condition, that too is subject to disintegration, Ananda, and is called the world. And then Ananda asks the Buddha, Venerable Sir, it said, Empty is the world. Empty is the world. In what way is it said, Empty is the world? And the Buddha responds. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self that it is said, Empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to self? The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to self. Forms are empty of self and what belongs to self. Eye consciousness, eye contact, mind consciousness, whatever feeling arises with mind contact as the condition, whether pleasant or painful, or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is empty of self and what belongs to self. It is Ananda because it is empty of self and what belongs to self, that it is said, empty is the world. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the changing, interdependent, and empty nature of all things. Again the mirror of the Dhamma from the perspective of an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially of the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that I am of the same nature as all other natural things. I know that there is really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. And a wonderfully simple poem by the poet Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'll offer two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of the mind opening to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. And if an image doesn't come easily for you, simply allow a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. And so sitting comfortably and beginning with closing your eyes and visualizing or in some way sensing an enormous jeweled net, a net of infinite, of boundless proportions. And letting this fill your heart, fill your mind. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all the gems at all the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now let the image or let the felt sense just simply dissolve. Let it go. The intricately interwoven, interdependent tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many-hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness. The relative side of not-self, no-self. This is the ground of understanding the aspect of the wisdom of not-self that compassion springs from. As awakening beings we find that more and more often we act only from the heart of compassion because of a growing and pervading clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There's only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There's no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate me. And from 8th century Buddhist monk Shanti Deva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own and I should be good to them because they feel just as I do when both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others no amazement or conceit arises just like feeding myself I hope for nothing in return And now the second guided meditation in the mind's eye or the eye of wisdom which is centered in the heart visualize are simply open to a felt sense an image or a felt sense of a vast clear empty, endless sky or sky-like space, and relaxing and staying open and present with this. And now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space, this sky-like space. The clouds are moving and changing shape, dissolving, new clouds appearing and disappearing. In this visualization or felt sense, let the openness of the sky, the vast openness, rest in the Eye of Wisdom and not fixating on any cloud, just really simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, just simply allow the clear, empty, endless, sky-like space to rest in the heart, to rest in the eye of wisdom. Now let the image fade away and just for a moment letting the heart, the mind open very wide, allowing awareness to be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. Now for a moment quickly turn awareness around to look at itself not looking for anything just aware of awareness itself knowing the knowing capacity of the heart the mind who's aware Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body. Back to the breath. back to hearing and just sit quietly for a few moments. As we learn to step back and open up and at the same time come close and face into the looking glass with willingness and humility, we begin to touch the empty essence of all things. The vast, open, empty essence of all things that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in and we keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. and we see that everything, all things are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this there's no thing that's satisfied. No thing that brings pleasure, joy, or or ease in an ongoing or in a sustaining way. And we understand that we really can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or in the world around us to render us really, truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look in the mirror, into the mirror at ourself. Going back and back into this looking glass of self, mindful awareness becomes clearer and more and more precise at the same time as it becomes open and spacious, back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. And instead of finding some solid, static, separate something or some solid rendition of I or me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this bright vital spaciousness of heart, spaciousness of being. In this there's no solid separate I or other. It's this essential heart of being, or what's sometimes referred to as emptiness. It's in this that there's an ease, the equipoise of a deep ease, even in the midst of the arising, changing, and ceasing happenings of life within us and around us. As long as we fixedly reside Mentally, in the realm of I, me, mine, and other, we're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. Really, the greatest problems. The greatest suffering we experience. We have a sense of being separate, of being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering, the cause of the core loneliness that human beings feel. I'd like to tell you a story about a friend of mine, a true story. This friend uh, was suffering with this core loneliness and so he decided to seek the help of a therapist for the first time uh, in his life at the age of 40. And with the advice from some friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. And when he called to make an appointment, uh, he was told by the secretary that it would be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem some symbol of his concern with him for this first appointment for the first therapy session. So he arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different sizes and shapes and colors and he set them down in the waiting room. And then he went out to his car and he got another load and he piled these on top of the first load And he told me um, and the therapist that he had to go around collecting baggage from friends and from family because he said he didn't have enough of his own. (laughs) So when it came time to go into the therapist's office, he of course took all of the baggage in there with him and piled it up between him and the therapist. And he said that at some point during this first session, Uh, The therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open up all the baggage that he'd brought in with him. And so he did. And he found that there wasn't anything inside any of it. (laughs) So a pretty wise therapist. (laughs) It's certainly not every uh, client or patient that you can do this with. But this man was obviously ready for such a pointing out. He'd actually asked for it, obviously. (laughs) When we begin to taste the truth of not-self, when we touch into this simple reality, often at times there can be a kind of poignancy. And then at some point, there can be a sense of entering into a measureless beauty, And often there's a feeling of relief, sometimes great relief. Like finally putting down a heavy load that we've been carrying around unwittingly and really not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize and understand the load and its nature and just simply set it down. There's an old teaching story about this that I really like it's a story of a woman who had practiced for many years and <clears throat> had had some powerful and expansive and even some illuminating experiences. But still she really hadn't reached the goal. And she was getting up in years and feeling like there really wasn't very much time left. And, so, and she so wanted freedom in this lifetime. So she decided to take herself up to the top of the mountain to see the wise one who she heard uh, was able to turn the mind, to turn the heart towards the truth. And as she was nearing the end of her arduous hike up the mountain, an old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. And just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him, And he stopped and he turned towards her. And the woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on top of the mountain and explained that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth. She wanted ultimate, with the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime. And she explained that she wanted to awaken and be liberated from all of her confusion and anguish and striving. And she told the old man that she'd heard that the wise one up at the top of the mountain might be able be the one to reveal this to her. The old man stood still and briefly looked at this woman and then taking his time he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain, just for a few steps. And then he stopped again, and he briefly stood still, and then again slowly turned around towards the woman, and then very slowly and very carefully took the satchel off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village can we come to know about phenomena so clearly so truly that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled don't get stung don't get caught up with it Therein lies the potential for peace of mind, peace in the heart. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as it's appropriate. And we keep exploring, seeing and understanding, living life, and in fact living life much more freshly and much more fully, right here and right now. And ordinary life becomes our practice, ordinary life becomes our teacher. And so there are two wings of liberation with which we fly free. The wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of an unfettered pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom comes about through our experiential insight into the not-self nature, the empty essence of all things. And the other wing is the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, this being the relative aspect of understanding not-self. This wing of freedom, the wing of compassion, is that which connects us to the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self, which connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of not-self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, informs how we act in this world, how we act in this life. To really truly fly free we need both wings. And closing the talk this evening with two pieces from a collection called the Udana, the Inspired Utterances of the Buddha. And the first piece, seclusion is happiness for one content, who knows the Dhamma, who has seen, did I say conclusion? Seclusion. I think I said conclusion. (laughs) Seclusion is happiness for one content, one who knows the Dhamma, who has seen. Friendliness towards the world is happiness for those whose hearts bend kindly to all beings. Serenity amidst the world is happiness for those who have let go of sense desires. But the end of the conceit, I am, that's the greatest happiness of all and the second piece from these inspired utterances of the buddha comes from a conversation or a, 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 a teaching that he gave to one of his uh, his disciples named bahia and this is his what he tells bahia in the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This Bahia is how you should train yourself. Since Bahia, there is for you in the seen only the seen, in the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. And as you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that nor in any place betwixt the two this alone is the end of suffering and let's sit together quietly for just a moment